Welcome to Eric Hurst's Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Hello and welcome to the Training for Climbing podcast. I'm Eric Hurst from trainingforclimbing.com and in this episode I'm going to bring you some reflections on a road trip. That is, I'm going to share some of my personal experiences from the past month and give you a sense of how performance can vary somewhat when you're on a long road trip. Also in this episode, I'm going to bring you kind of a Mythbusters segment where I will dispel five common performance enhancement and training for climbing practices that many well-intentioned climbers engage in but that are kind of a waste of time or provide very little benefit or maybe even hurt performance. So more on that in just a bit. Okay then, let's get started and let's jump right into some tips that just maybe will come in handy for you if you're headed out on a road trip late this summer or during the fall season. I want to start off here telling you a bit about uh, our road trip, our family vacation. Every year we head west for several weeks. This year it was four weeks, mostly in Wyoming. Uh, and uh, of course the goal is to climb as much as possible and to perform as well as we can, but also not to get injured and, and not to burn out and just have a good time as a family, uh, both on the rocks and off the rocks. But yeah, we're serious climbers here in the Hearst family. And so we're always thinking about performance and how to plan out our trip, um, our training before the trip, uh, our climbing and rest during the trip, and even what we do uh, in the weeks following the trip. So I want to give you a little bit of insight into this process, uh, give you a few tidbits of information that um, if you're heading out on a multi-week trip, you can perhaps leverage to help you perform your best. And even if you're not headed on a trip this summer, I hope you will be in the future headed on a longer road trip where you can focus on climbing for a few weeks and be more than just a weekend warrior. And when you get to that point, you just can't climb every day. That might be your inclination as your enthusiasm uh, is bubbling to, to climb. But if you want to perform your best, you have to be a little smarter about planning out your trip your climbing days and rest days and perhaps having to work around the weather depending where you're at that's always a challenge so let me just touch and uh, touch base on a few things here now uh, first of all in the previous podcast i guess actually the last two podcasts i talked about uh, the training uh, heading up to a road trip uh, in the weeks and months in advance with the goal of hopefully peaking for the start of your trip or for the the climbing adventure that you're off on to so with that in mind, it's good to try to plan out your first climbing day at your destination to be somewhere around four or five days after your last hard training day. You kind of want to taper your training in the final days of the training cycle and then have a few days of rest that corresponds with your travel days. And then you'll arrive at the crag with 100% strength and power. And I'll tell you, the first week or two that you're off on your climbing trip, uh, that's a golden period because you have, or at least assuming that you've been on a very sound, dedicated training cycle, uh, you should be at a true peak. You should have a level of strength and power that first week or two um, that isn't going to last forever. And so the goal is really to, to jump on a project or a couple of projects early on and hopefully send those projects in the first week or two. And the reason that's important is if you're on a longer climbing trip where you're not doing any targeted training, you're not hangboard training, you're not campus training, if you're just out climbing, it's a different stimulus. It's a different way of working the muscles than that very specific targeted training. And the result of that is that after about two weeks, you're going to begin to lose your high-end strength and power. And as you get into week three and week four of your road trip, there will actually be noticeable loss or detraining that occurs in your strength and power. Now, your endurance may be improving on the trip, but you know, if you're into hard bouldering or hard sport climbing, it's the strength and power on those crux moves or crux sequences that is most important to have. And by, say, week three and week four of your trip, 
you're beginning to lose your edge. So it's important to kind of have a game plan. Maybe you want to climb a couple of days at the, your destination to kind of get accustomed to the type of rock and to scope out the area and maybe settle in on a project. But after those first few climbing days, you should get to work. You should go after that project. And uh, if all goes well, be able to send it in the first week or two while you are still at your peak. And trust me, you may feel or at least intuit that you should be getting stronger as your road trip goes on. But if you're a well-trained climber, you know, that is a climber who really knows what they're doing during their training blocks leading up to a trip. If that's you, then your strength and power will be waning as your trip goes on. Again, endurance can improve, but maximum strength and power will begin to drop off after about the first two weeks of the trip. That's just a fact. Now, if you're not a climber who's done highly focused uh, training for several weeks or several months leading up to the trip, if you just dabble in training or just climb for fun during the week, well, then you may go on the trip and actually improve your fitness overall, both endurance, strength, and power. But again, for a well-trained athlete, the strength and power will be dropping off after about two weeks. And I'll tell you, this is not a fact overlooked and, and not understood by pro climbers like Adam Andra and Alex Megos. You know, Alex in particular has mastered the art of the quicksand. He goes on a trip and usually sends his project in the first week, if not the first day or two. I, I believe in the past month, he, he went to Rocklands and sent his V15 project on the first day or two of the trip. Um, he trained for that project. He arrived fresh and in a peak state, and he sent the problem. Rest of the trip, icing on the cake. And if his maximum strength and power wanes, well, then he'll just do V15. 13 or 14 for a week or two. So um, uh, in, in any case, uh, Adam Andre, same story. He goes, he does a training block for a few weeks or a few months, and then he goes and works on a project. And as he's sensing he's losing strength and power, it's back to the gym for another training block. Um, now, if you go on a longer trip, hey, have at it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with going on a trip for four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, just recognize that without some tune-up training interspersed within that trip, you know, a hangboard or campus workout once a week, your maximum strength and power will be falling off after about the second week of the trip. Okay, something else, rest days versus climbing days when you're on a road trip. Now, again, if you arrive on a trip well-rested and in a peak state, you can probably start off climbing two days on, one day off, especially if you're a younger climber. And that may serve you well for the first week or two, but again, uh, fatigue begins to accumulate, especially central fatigue, that relating to the nervous system. Even if your muscles aren't feeling weak and you feel like you can recover in a day off, um, after a couple of weeks, the nervous system uh, is accumulating fatigue and falls behind. And you know, kind of a general sense of malaise may begin to develop. It gets a little harder to get out of bed in the morning or to get yourself going at the crags. And so, a two-day-on, one-day-off schedule, that may be very good for the first week or two. And then you might have to shift to a schedule that allows for a little more recovery, uh, maybe a one-day-on, one-day-off climb-rest schedule, um, or maybe go two days on, one day off, then two days on, two days off, or even three days off uh, to give yourself some extended rest periods. And if you do that, you might be able to carry that peak uh, strength and power over into a third week before it begins to uh, tail off. Now, age is a, uh, I guess, a limiting factor or influential factor in uh, the recovery equation. I don't recover as fast as my teenage sons do, that is for sure. And so like when we were on our trip in Wyoming and, you know, we're spending four weeks at elevation, climbing at eight to 9,000 feet above sea level and coming from sea level, well, there's an adaptive period the first week or two we're there to make red blood cells. That's another reason our strength and power seems pretty good to start the trip, but endurance gets better later in the trip because of all the climbing we're doing, and we eventually get acclimated and have the red blood cell count up so that we can really climb at our maximum aerobic power. 
Uh, but elevation and age aside, other things that influence your recovery and ability to perform on a longer road trip, well, diet and rest. How much do you sleep at night? Well, if you're climbing hard and you're on a road trip, nine or 10 hours, maybe more, uh, is a pretty good goal. And you know, if you don't have to go to work and if you don't have other obligations on your road trip, then it, there shouldn't be a problem getting 10 hours of sleep after a hard day of climbing. And of course, eating well. That might be a little more challenging on the road, you know, trying to plan your meals out appropriately so there's enough protein to rebuild your muscles and enough carbohydrate to fuel your very powerful climbing movements, which depend on muscle glycogen. And uh, if you're not eating enough carbohydrates on a day-to-day basis, well, then your glycogen reserves inside your muscles and in your liver will begin to drop off day over day, and you'll uh, lose your high-end power. And you'll gradually see a drop off in your strength endurance and power endurance needed to climb a lot of pitches or to work a route for an extended period of time. Uh, on any given day. And, you know, one thing I do on a road trip is I err on the side of eating a little too much. Uh, you know, I follow my diet pretty closely year round. And uh, during a training block, uh, I err actually on the side of maybe being a little short on uh, my calories. That is maybe a deficit of 100 calories a day. It's hard to, to nail it precisely. But if I come in even or a slight calorie deficit during a training block, as long as I'm getting enough protein, I'm not worried about it because I, I like to have uh, fairly low body fat, between 8 and 10%. And uh, you know I feel body composition is a pretty important factor for me and for most uh, higher level climbers. And so uh, having a little bit of a calorie deficit during a training block, especially in the final weeks heading up to a trip, has me feeling very light when I hit the road. Now, when I'm on the road trip, the last thing I want to do is have a calorie deficit because that would just uh, shortchange me on recovery. And again, as I, as I mentioned, I probably wouldn't have the glycogen storage, the supplies for anaerobic power. And so uh, on a trip, I go the other direction. I err on the side of eating one or two or even 300 calories too much on any given day. And so over the course of a few weeks, if I'm on the road for a month and I'm consuming a surplus of a few hundred calories per day, well then that translates into me returning home a couple pounds heavier and with my percent body fat, maybe one or two percent higher. But who cares as long as it's helping me recover quickly so I can get as many days on the rock as possible. So that's my preferred strategy. And again, if you're an advanced climber, you need to be thinking with that degree of nuance, trying to get everything right. If you're a beginner or intermediate, just learning to climb, maybe breaking into the mid grades, you know, 510, 5'11, maybe even 5'12. Well, you know, then nuancing diet uh, isn't the most important thing. Constantly working on your climbing technique and refining your mental game, that is far more important for the beginner and intermediate climber. But in the advanced stages, assuming, you know, a climber is technically and mentally pretty solid, well, then getting the other details right becomes paramount. Okay, so another tidbit here, uh, returning from the road trip. Well, uh, you know, coming home from a month of climbing, where you're climbing three or four, maybe five days a week, uh, you will have accumulated a degree of fatigue where you really do need to take four to seven days, perhaps more, away from training, away from climbing, and just kind of uh, let your body recover, let your brain recover for that matter. And you probably get home and have some work to catch up on or some other family matters you need to catch up on. So don't feel guilty if you take a week off from training and climbing upon return from a longer road trip. But uh, unless you're extremely fatigued, let's say you were up on a big wall for an extended period of time or you were at elevation, living and climbing for an extended period of time, you know, in that case, you might need two weeks off. But assuming just standard sport climbing or cragging for a few weeks, I think seven days is enough. And then you need to circle back and start your next training block, or maybe shift into an undulating periodization scheme where you're uh, training two days a week, uh, and then climbing two days on weekends. 
if you're heading back into the mode of being a, a weekend climber. Uh, so again, for me personally, uh, having been on a road trip for uh, four weeks and climbing probably oh, 18 or 20 days out of 30 days on the road, um, I'm fatigued. And so a week off is what I'm planning. You know, I got a little pains here and there that hopefully will uh, go away over the course of a week. And then I'll begin a new training block. Final comment. Uh, you may have read in the media about Adam Andra working on his project hard uh, in Flatanger, Norway. It's speculated to perhaps be the world's first 515D. Uh, if you're not following his Instagram feed, do so because he gives a nice commentary uh, about the process of working Project Hard and the training that he puts into it. Now, he's the world's best climber. He trains at an intensity and a volume that none of us mere mortals should even really ponder. It's fun to watch in his videos, but it's not something you want to mimic precisely. In any case, if you've been following Adam's progress on Project Hard. He's making uh, longer links of uh, the very difficult sequences on the route. And who knows, maybe sending Project Hard is just a matter of weeks or maybe months this fall that the world may have its first 515D. But what I wanted to point out here, and this kind of uh, underscores or summarizes what I've just gone over here the last 15 minutes, is that when Adam goes to Flatanger to work on Project Hard, he's there for two or three weeks, and then he heads back home to train. Because after two weeks, he senses that drop in maximum strength and power. Because working on a project is not an effective training strategy uh, to reach your limits. It might be the most effective way to work the project, like to actually learn the moves and figure out you know, the most economic way of climbing this massively long and overhanging route. So that time spent on the route is important, but the level of strength and power he needs and endurance for that matter, which is somewhat dictated by that maximum level of strength and power, that is what is developed in the gym and lost at the crag very slowly over the course of a few weeks. So after two or three weeks in flat anger, he's back to his gym to train. And that is where he's at right now as I speak, putting in a training block. It might only be a three or four week block. And I would anticipate we're gonna hear about Adam heading back to Norway to work on Project Hard during the month of September. And just maybe that'll be when the route goes down. If not, I would anticipate he's home to train for the winter and he'll come back in the spring with a higher level of strength and power and send the route then. And I'll tell you, everyone here in the Hearst family is following Adam closely. We wish him the best of luck. Adam, go send that route. Okay, on we go to our Mythbusters segment. I'm going to present to you five myths, uh, things that I hear frequently people email and ask me about. Um, I'm sure you've heard comments that will relate to these five myths amongst climbers at the gym or the crags. And, uh, you know, um, there's nothing earth-shaking here, but I want to give you a little bit of a justification why these items are for the most part, myths. There might be a glimmer of truth depending on uh, an individual or the perspective, but generally I'm going to shoot down five common myths that relate to training for climbing, climbing performance, and such. You know, I've been in the sport 40 years now, and I've been writing about climbing performance, studying the subject, um, and coaching for more than 30 years. So I've heard it all. And, you know, over the years, of course, training for climbing has slowly advanced. There's in recent years, some climbing research uh, that we've been able to leverage to improve training protocols. But a lot of what is done is based on kind of dogma, or just kind of how things have been done in the past. Uh, you know, Long-term coaches have a good intuitive sense of what to prescribe to a given climber to get good results, uh, and you know that's that's all that's all fine and dandy. But going forward, we do need to become more evidence-based as uh, climbing coaches and as uh, climbers really interested in training at a high level. And uh, and actually, I think uh, 
Next month, I'm going to do a podcast where I talk a little bit about my vision for the future of training for climbing and some of the uh, changes and improvements and exciting technology that I believe will come online over the next few years or say the next decade, which probably will open the door to the world's first 516A. Uh, Might take 10 years, but I think it's inevitable given the young climbers that we have out there today, if they stay motivated and injury-free and uh, are trained in highly specific and nuanced ways, I think, it, I think it's going to happen in the next 10 years, 516A. Okay, but I digress. Let's go on to myth number one. And myth number one is that hangboard training with weights is only good for elite climbers, pro climbers, and that it will injure the average climber, the weekend warrior. Okay, so what I'm talking about here is uh, adding weight to your body via a weight belt or free weights clipped on to the belay loop of your harness uh, and then hanging on edges and pockets of different sizes on a hangboard. And again, the myth being that it's a dangerous strategy that should only be used by elite climbers. Okay, so uh, let me shoot this one down. Uh, First of all, the, the grain of truth in that myth is beginner climbers. They have no business even really touching a hangboard. If you're in your first year of climbing, you need to climb. And just through uh, climbing in a gym or climbing outdoors two or three or four days a week, you're going to subject your finger flexors and the finger tendons to enough stress that they will adapt uh, during those those formative months and even the first year or two of climbing. Uh, Now, as you progress, as you become able to handle your uh, body weight well and safely without pain or injury, well, then you do need to, to escalate your training a little bit. And so the beginner who's never touched a hangboard during, say, their first year or two probably needs to ease into some hangboard training, uh, maybe during their second or third year in the sport. Uh, maybe that roughly corresponds with them achieving yeah, the 510 plus 511 grade. And at first, they want to use the hangboard at just body weight, where they're grabbing um, maybe one pad uh, deep edges um, or two pad deep pockets, like two finger pockets. Uh, not getting on the real tiny edges and certainly not adding weight just yet. But uh, by hanging uh, on your fingers, by not having your feet uh supporting any weight as they would when you're climbing, you are now escalating the stress onto the finger flexors and the flexor tendons uh, so that they will begin to adapt again to that higher um, resistance and stimulus to adapt. And something that's very important to point out here, you know, we think about strengthening the muscles with fingerboard training and, and, and the like. Equally important and, and an equal reason to do fingerboard training is to strengthen the tendons. Yes, your tendons, like muscles, break down on a microscopic level and recover and get stronger and, in fact, thicker and stiffer, able to carry greater force loads over time. The problem with the tendons in your fingers is they do so at a much slower rate than the muscles. And that is the source of injury for many climbers. You know, they get those A2 pulley injuries or flexor tendon injuries is that their muscles are getting stronger uh, and they train harder and they climb more often. And the tendons, meanwhile, have not caught up. They have not had enough rest day, enough time to strengthen themselves. And, uh, and hence, you ultimately end up with a tendon that's weaker than the muscle And over time, the chronic abuse um, eventually comes to a day kind of where the straw breaks the camel's back and you're pulling a hold and boom, you get that injury. And while it maybe occurred acutely, it was the result of this chronic training harder and harder, but yet not the tendon not having enough time to recover. Now, not every climber gets that. Some of us are blessed with stronger tendons than others. Some of it comes down to genetics and the architecture 
of our fingers and forearms. Um, there's some climbers out there that are just bulletproof. They, ne they never get injured no matter how much they abuse themselves or how hard they train. And then there's other climbers that just seem to be chronically injured, you know, from one injury to the next or the recurrent uh, cycle of injuries. And again, there may be some underlying genetic reason for that. Uh, and there might be other reasons. In, in any case, I think fingerboard training is something that every intermediate advanced and elite climber should do for the very reason I just mentioned. Not only does it train the finger flexors to get stronger in a very specific way, but it is a way to, uh, in a controlled setting, expose the tendons to greater force loads that will allow them to stiffen up and get stronger over time. And so uh, that intermediate climber, year three, year four, who begins to do, say, twice a week body weight training on the fingerboard, well, eventually they need to take it up a notch. And the way you do that is by adding some weight to your body. You know, after a few three or four week training cycles, if you're feeling stronger uh, and no sense of injury, uh, you can probably start to ease into adding 10 pounds around your waist uh, and go through the same type of workouts you've done before, but at a little higher resistance. And uh, you should not be doing year-round fingerboard training. You need to do some training blocks where you do give uh, the tendons some time off from the hangboard and allow them to recover. Uh, and uh, you know, my book, Training for Climbing, provides uh, some good blueprints for finger training, uh, various training protocols, as well as kind of a, a cycle or a schedule to follow for intermediate and advanced climbers. So again, the intermediate climber starts off at body weight, and then once they uh, become accustomed to that and adapt to that, then they begin to add on some weight. And again, I think it corresponds uh, adding weight to your body for fingerboard training, maybe to being right around the 512A level. Again, that's not a hard and fast rule, so don't quote me on that. Some climbers may be ready before that time. Other climbers maybe have a history of finger injuries. Maybe they shouldn't even do it uh, upon becoming a solid 512 climber. Uh, so again, the most effective training program has to be nuanced specifically to you, uh, the nature of your uh, strengths and weaknesses and your injury history and your time and motivation to, to train and, and push your limits in climbing. Uh, so as you advance, become a, a more of an elite climber, climbing 513, maybe getting ready to break into 514 or say V10 or V12, uh, and that's where the, the not, you have to escalate things even further. And if you're doing two-handed hangboard training, say on a 20 millimeter edge, you may be adding upwards of 100 pounds to your body or 50 kilograms. And assuming you become uh, competent and strong at that type of resistance, and assuming you can do a one-arm pull-up, well, then the next step would be to, to begin to do some one-arm hangboard training in which you're gripping the hangboard with uh, just a single hand, say a 20 millimeter edge, with not a straight arm, but a slightly bent arm, as if you're beginning to do a one-arm pull-up. Uh, and, and perhaps adding weight, holding a dumbbell or a kettlebell in the free hand. Again, that's a real elite uh, strategy that you know pro climbers uh, should be probably using frequently, uh, but maybe the average listener to this podcast will need to hold off on for a period of time. But kind of the bottom line on this is that, yeah, hangboard training with weight is a really good method for not only developing stronger uh, finger flexor muscles, but also stronger tendons and tendon pulleys in your fingers. So in wrapping up this myth on hangboard training, for Pretty much all climbers, except for beginners and injured climbers, uh, at least a small amount of hangboard training is a good thing. Of course, you want to introduce it carefully and have a focus on resistance over volume. And finally, never forget that hangboard training, like campus training, you do it in small doses. You don't do hours and hours a week. You do maybe two hangboard training sessions per week, 
as part of a larger, more comprehensive training program. And uh, I did a series of videos for Epic TV about a year ago. There's two of them on hangboard and uh, campus training. So look those up. You can find them on my website or on Epic TV or on YouTube. And uh, they kind of present my philosophy and some training protocols on hangboard and campus training. Okay, on to myth number two. Well, we covered the hangboard. How about the campus board? And uh, the myth here is that campus training is a staple and vitally important exercise for all climbers. And of course, that's foolish. Uh, the typical weekend warrior that's maybe only climbing 5, 10, or 5, 11, I would question whether they should even touch a campus board until they've displayed to me that they have uh, very strong rotator cuff and scapular stabilizer muscles and the ability to get their scapula in the proper positioning to do these one-arm movements, these very powerful, stressful movements on a campus board. A lot of injuries come about because somebody uh, is dabbling in campus training or just dives into a campus training program before their shoulders are ready, or for that matter, their finger flexors and finger tendons are ready. Um, I think a pretty long record of hangboard training is a necessary precursor to entering into campus training. And similarly, um, I'm a strong advocate in a uh, having a track record or being committed to training those scapular stabilizers and the rotator cuff muscles with a half a dozen different exercises on a regular basis for several months or even a year before you really uh, fully engage in a campus training program. And by uh, doing those things, by not putting the cart before the horse, but by getting your finger flexors and tendons and your shoulder muscles and stabilizers uh, prepared for that stress of campus training, doing that uh, ahead of time, maybe you want to call it prehab, because by doing it ahead of uh, the immersion in campus training, you will likely be able to avoid injury. Whereas climbers who just dive into campus training, maybe they see some videos on Instagram or on YouTube, or they see Adam Andre doing his incredible campus training workouts, and they think, that's what I need to do to climb harder. Well, you do that without being ready, and you uh, quite likely will end up injured and uh, do yourself more harm than good. So the myth that I'm dispelling here is that campus training is a staple training exercise that really every serious climber should do. And uh, the reality of it is, is it is more of an advanced training program. Whereas the hangboard, I think, can be used by intermediates who aspire to become advanced um, and do so uh, over time and progress steadily. Uh, the campus board is something that you don't want to rush into. Now, there are some ways that you can dabble on it in a controlled manner, like with putting your feet on a foot strip or a chair underneath the campus board, and you can start to get some of the stimulus in a very controlled way to develop rate of force development. And I don't want to get into those details here, but I'm not saying there's not uh, a few uh, controlled methods that maybe an intermediate could dabble in uh, on the campus board in very small doses, but uh, you, you need a coach to show that to you, or you need to find a climber who really knows what they're doing on the campus board, show you those kind of controlled, more static ways of using the campus board. Uh, what most of us recognize as campus training, like the, the laddering one, three, five, seven, or one, four, seven, or one, five, eight, takes a lot of power. It takes a lot of control uh, and strength in the shoulder muscles. And if you're if you try to do those exercises before you're ready, you might get away with it for a short time, but uh, the end game may not be pretty. And so uh, one step at a time and you will get there and be able to do it safely. Um, now, for elite climbers, uh, those who are able to do one-arm pull-ups already, a good solid one-arm pull-up, and for those who can uh, hang on uh, the first pad of their fingers, maybe one arm, and do a nice lock-off, uh, or hang with 80 or 100 pounds on a hangboard around their waist um, on the first pad of their fingers, uh, 
and have several years of training under their belt and climb at a high level. You know, I'm kind of checking a lot of boxes here, but if you check all of those boxes, well then, yes, campus training is an important tool uh, and something you will use during the maximum strength and uh, power block of your training cycle. And, uh, you know, I would argue that that uh, for that elite climber, uh, whether it's a 513 climber or a 515 climber, that hangboard training and campus training, designing the workout, uh, maybe even in uh, complexes where you're merging the hangboard training and the campus training um, into these couplets, uh, what I call a complex, uh, that is a powerful training tool. And uh if you watched Adam Andra work out or uh, some V-hard boulderer, you would see they spend quite a bit of time on the hangboard and the campus board uh, in terms of taking max strength and power to the next level is essential for those elite climbers to eke out the next letter grade or the next V grade. So, of course, they need to dedicate a lot of time there but they might have a decade or more of training under their belt. And if they're a pro worth their salt, well, then they're doing the stabilizer and antagonist training to help strengthen their shoulders so that they don't get injured as a result of their training. And so again, uh, you see a little snippet on Instagram or a short video on YouTube. You're not seeing all that uh, foundation that uh, was built to allow for the climber to do what they're doing in those videos, that elite climber. So the bottom line is campus training, it's not something to be rushed into. It's not something that the everyday climber uh, probably wants to do. With that being said, however, advanced and elite climbers, well, it does become an essential part of an effective workout in proper doses and integrated into a larger comprehensive training program that involves uh, weighted hangboarding and uh, a slew of other uh, training modalities. Okay, myth number three, and this relates to uh, developing climbing technique. And the myth is that uh, climbing being a skill sport, uh, it's essential to get in the mythical 10,000 hours that was popularized, uh, the 10,000 hour rule popularized in the Malcolm Gladwell book, uh, where um, he really misused the research behind the 10,000-hour rule. And without getting long-winded, the 10,000-hour rule of deliberate practice being a requirement to reach elite status, uh, that was with musicians, like a violinist at a music academy, uh, needing to accumulate 10,000 hours of practice on their instrument to become an elite. Applying it to sports and to other physical pursuits is just wrong. And while, yes, climbing is a skill, like playing an instrument, um, you can't really tear tendons and wreck your shoulders uh, playing the violin. Whereas climbing is very rigorous and requires downtime. And uh, the fact is, I can name a climber, many climbers, who have reached elite status in 5,000 hours or less. Chris Sharma did the hardest climb in America. What was it? Necessary Evil 514C when he was 15 or 16 years old and had only been climbing two years. So if he was climbing, let's see here, 20 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, that's 1,000 hours. And then he did it for two or three years. That's two or three thousand hours. So Chris Sharma reached elite status, like as in the best in America in 3,000 hours, give or take a few hundred hours. And so applied to athletic pursuits, the 10,000 hour rule is bogus. I can name many climbers who achieved elite status in just a few years of dedicated training. So forget the idea that you need to go to the gym with every free moment that you have to force yourself or your kids or the people you coach to climb six, seven days a week. That's probably counterproductive because mentally they may get burned out, physically they may get injured. And so settling into a, a practice schedule, 
I think three or four days a week is a good goal. Um, if you're doing a lot of submaximal climbing, perhaps you could do five days a week. Um, if you're doing a lot of really high-end climbing, maybe it's only three days a week. So in any case, three to five days a week for a few hours at a time uh, in terms of practicing climbing that's probably a good amount. Um, and of course, doing some supplemental training that's appropriate uh, as well. So forget the 10,000 hour rule. Anybody who mentions it or writes about it in the context of climbing uh, is uh, misapplying the research and it's just not a valid rule. It's a myth. So it's been busted. Okay. Myth number four, and it relates to uh, misuse of training techniques and modalities that are presented in uh, fitness magazines, men's health, muscle and fitness, um, or any number of websites out there, uh, T-Nation or bodybuilding.com, you know, anything that's designed for fitness or physique training or bodybuilding uh, or CrossFit, uh, there's the information's ubiquitous these days on the internet and you can certainly walk into any newsstand and see magazines with guys and gals flexing on the cover and while it is uh titillating and attractive and you know we all like to presumably look fit and healthy um it's attempting to pick up those magazines and believe me i've i've done that i've i've even written a few articles for men's health and similar magazines over the years. Uh, but in terms of uh, climbing specific training, things that you might want to apply to your training program, those magazines are, for the most part, red herrings. They're going to lead you down the wrong path. And without getting overly specific here, I, I guess the, the take-home point is climbers are not bodybuilders. So that uh, most of the things presented in those magazines and websites, those physique uh, or bodybuilding websites are designed to make big muscles uh, to create a uh, physique that uh, has bulging biceps or big pecs or uh, very you know detailed quadricep muscles. Uh, you name it. Uh, and so while climbers tend to be very fit and oftentimes very ripped and have impressive physiques. The goal, however, we, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't get confused in our minds with what we need to be doing when it comes to our training. And so uh, picking up a magazine and applying, say, a bodybuilding protocol of doing three sets or five sets of 10 to 12 repetitions, that would be a big mistake because that is a training protocol for hypertrophy, for building larger muscles. Uh, you know, a bodybuilder will go to the gym and do five sets of 10 reps on bench press, on bicep curl, on lat pull down, but that's not the protocol for a climber. Um, and I'm, I don't want to detail what a climber should do because that's beyond this myth. I'm just pointing out that you open up those magazines or read those websites, you're going to see a lot of stuff that you don't want to apply to climbing. It's likely not going to help you and it might very well hurt you. And every couple of years, there's a new fad. I remember a few years ago, it was the, what was it, the PDX90 or something like that. There was all the infomercials out there that um, did... Uh, very intense workouts. And there's CrossFit, which I'm impressed with the CrossFitters. They are incredible athletes and incredibly strong for their body size, uh, but they're not training or built to be um, elite climbers. And so while I have nothing wrong with those workouts, um, they're not the right workout for a serious rock climber. And you can open up these magazines and see, you know, the latest research shows, uh, you know, that you should be doing this or doing that. But really, have you read the research paper or are you just seeing a line pulled from it that's put into an article that says that, say, blood flow restriction training is a great training technique? In case you're not familiar with it, blood flow restriction training uh, is where you put a cuff around your arm and you occlude the venous return of blood out of your arms so that you have blood flowing in faster than it's flowing out and you get this pooling of blood. You get a real big pump. You get this accumulation of metabolic byproducts as you do, say, finger rolls or bicep curls or 
whatnot. Um, and it's a very pumpy workout. It's a very stressful workout. And it's popular with bodybuilders because uh, that metabolic stress triggers hypertrophy. And that's what the research on blood flow restriction has shown, that it's an effective tool for building bigger muscles. But because you're uh, occluding the blood flow, uh, by necessity, you have to train at a much lower intensity, uh, only a fraction of what your maximum voluntary contraction would be. And so blood flow restriction training is not a good technique for building strength. And that's exactly what a climber wants. A climber wants to get stronger week over week or year over year. And there are very specific training protocols like weighted hangboard training and such that will get you there. But blood flow restriction is not one of them. Uh, the one time you might it might be useful for climbers is when you're injured, where you can't do hangboard training or you can't climb at all because of a tendon injury. And therefore, uh, you can use the blood flow restriction and exercise at a very low resistance that won't um, hamper the recovery from the injury and still create a metabolic stress that will at least keep your muscles um, activated, um, keep the mitochondria content up, and you know, maybe preserve some strength. Uh, but to apply blood flow restriction, just because Muscle and Fitness said it's the latest, greatest technique for bodybuilders, applying it to climbing because of that is um, uh, flawed thinking and flawed uh, training strategy. So again, I'm not shooting it down completely. I think there is some use of it in the case of an injured climber. But for a healthy climber, forget the blood flow restriction training. Uh, do a good hangboard training uh, cycle and do your scapular stabilizer training. And uh, if you're uh, advanced enough, do your campus training. They will get you to the promised land. Blood flow restriction won't. And by the way, final comment, hypertrophy uh, in the arm muscles or in any muscles for a climber, we can debate whether that's a good thing. Um, certainly adding uh, mass to your legs uh, or your uh, glutes, your lower body muscles would be a bad thing because climbing is all about strength to weight ratio. We want to get stronger and keep our mass down. Upper body, I guess you could argue that perhaps uh, a little bit of hypertrophy in the arms, uh, the, the uh, lats, the chest, the shoulders, perhaps would be a good thing. But to do excessive bench press training would be a bad thing. You, you don't need gigantic pecs. Look at Adam Andre and Alex Magos with their shirt off. Uh, they're ripped, they're strong, but they don't have big muscles by any stretch. And how about the biceps? Those guys do not have big biceps, and nor do, does a climber want big biceps. And here's why. It's simple biomechanics. If you have baseball-sized biceps, like you would get from doing uh, bicep curls with a bar frequently, that big bulging bicep gets in the way of your ability to lock off a hold uh, near your chest, near your armpit. And that is one of the most important things in hard climbing, is being able to pull a hold down and lock off efficiently, and on a really hard route, maybe even hold that lock off tightly with one arm while you are resting the other arm. And so if you have a big bulging bicep, you can't close uh, the gap between your wrist and your chest and shoulder as tightly as you can if you had a smaller bicep. And, you know, for this reason, women who tend to have smaller biceps than men can hold a lock off incredibly long in many cases. And so be careful what you do with your training. Yes, your biceps and shoulders and lats will get a little bit bigger as you train for climbing. But should you be doing anything with the intention of muscle hypertrophy, that is making bigger muscles, be careful, tread carefully, because that's a pathway that can hurt you both in terms of body weight and biomechanics. Okay, and I'm getting long-winded here, as usual. So uh, the fifth myth I'll just touch on briefly relates to diet fads. This is kind of a follow-up or add-on to the previous myth. Uh, and diet is important. You've heard me talk about it. I've written a chapter on uh, performance nutrition in my book, Training for Climbing. But it's not rocket science. And, you know, the fad diets out there, while all of them tend to have a little bit of research behind them. It's 
manipulated to sell books in many cases or to sell nutritional products. And unless you are using the diet in the way it was studied in the research, it's probably being oversold. So for example, uh, for someone who is um, uh, insulin resistant, there are certain diets, particularly a low-carb, high-fat diet, that are effective as an intervention for treating insulin resistance and diabetes, for example. And so there are a few individuals, both climbers and non-climbers, who can benefit by going on a low-carb, high-fat diet and uh, going into ketosis. And so that ketogenic diet concept has uh, some benefits to it, but it's been misapplied. You know, if it's good for certain people, well, then it must be good for all people. And that's not the case. And it's certainly not the case when it comes to an athlete, especially an, a power athlete like a rock climber, where the uh, anaerobic lactic energy system is fueled by muscle glycogen and liver glycogen. And if you're on a ketogenic diet, you have very little muscle or liver glycogen to tap into, and hence power suffers. And there are studies showing that. It's really, there's no disputing that the low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet is the wrong diet for a power athlete. Um, if you're an ultra-endurance athlete, well, there are some studies that show that it really doesn't affect performance all that much, and perhaps can even help performance a little bit by uh, making you better at burning uh, fatty acids uh, in lieu of having that muscle glycogen available. But for a power athlete, uh, it just doesn't work. And so the same thing can be said about any number of other fad diets that are out there. They come and they go. Um, in terms of a climber, you just need to eat healthfully. Be sure you're getting enough protein, at least one gram per uh, kilogram of body weight, perhaps a gram and a half if you're uh, especially hardworking athlete or if you're an older athlete. Uh, having a little more protein may be uh, beneficial. Um, of course, getting uh, enough uh, vitamins, uh, the micronutrients, uh, the fiber, all the things that are uh, in high quantity in fresh vegetables, leafy green vegetables, all different colors of vegetables. A lot of American diets especially are void of those types of foods, but they are very important for a serious athlete and I think uh, an important part of a climber's diet. And of course, consuming the right kinds of dietary fats is very important. Not only do fats make up cell membranes, but fat is also an important source of energy for lower intensity activity like hiking or moderate climbing. And there are certain fats, such as omega-3s, that are quite helpful for athletes due to their anti-inflammatory effects. And there's even some brand new research that shows omega-3s may act as a signal for mitochondria biogenesis, which is important for climbers in terms of the aerobic energy system and our ability to recover uh, at uh, mid-climb rests and uh, between climbs and so on and so forth. So without going into any more detail on diet and nutrition, I guess the closing comment would be to uh, be weary of all those vitamin supplements that you see on the internet and in the various muscle mags. While some of them are valid and some of them have uh, benefits to athletes or to general health, the vast majority of them are a complete waste of money and you're just making expensive urine. Uh, so, uh, you know, a daily vitamin might be, you know, daily multivitamin might not be a bad idea if you're not sure if you're getting enough of the micronutrients. And I think uh, magnesium is probably something that many athletes aren't getting enough of unless they eat a lot of spinach. And, uh, uh, and magnesium is really important for hundreds of reasons, for hundreds of uh, metabolic processes. Uh, if you're short on magnesium, you're shortchanging yourself as an athlete. So taking some supplemental magnesium malate would not be a bad idea. Um, and also some fish oil. Um, you know, those are kind of the, the three things that I consume on a daily basis. 
what about creatine? That's one I'm asked a lot. And I'll tell you, I think it's the wrong supplement for climbers. Uh, yes, there's a lot of research that shows creatine as an effective supplement for athletes. But kind of like the exercises for men's health, just because they're good for building muscles doesn't mean they're good for climbers. Well, the same thing is true about creatine. When you load creatine into your muscles, uh, it's actually stored inside of the muscle cell and it takes water with it. So it has an effect of volumizing or making the cell larger. And bodybuilders love that. They love getting bigger muscles. And uh, it can also, creatine, because it's a source of rapid energy, is good for short, powerful movements, movements lasting less than 10 seconds, like lifting heavy weights or hanging on a hangboard or campus board. But for climbers, the um, weight gain that results from creatine loading, very often it can be a few pounds or a couple of kilograms of weight gain uh, that results when you take creatine on a daily basis, uh, it does more harm than good. And also the cell volumization that occurs by the cells in the muscles swelling, it actually I believe causes the capillaries, the, the microvascular network inside the muscle that takes oxygen into the cells and removes metabolic byproducts from the muscle cells, that mi microvascular network actually gets pinched and occluded by those um, swollen cells from as a result of the creatine loading. And so if you do creatine, you may notice a little more zip in your muscles, like hanging onto an edge or pulling on a campus board. But if you do climbing that lasts more than, say, 20 or 30 seconds, like a long boulder problem or a roped climb, what you'll likely notice if you're taking a lot of creatine is that you pump out more quickly. And it is it comes as a shock to some climbers. They're like, oh my gosh, why am I getting pumped so fast? Well, it's that blood flow in and out of the muscles, which is essential for recovery and for performing um, sustained like on uh, roped climbs or those resistance climbs. If you're pinching off that blood flow prematurely, uh, you will pump out more quickly and do far more harm than good. So I do not recommend creatine for rock climbers for a couple of reasons that I've just outlined. And uh, perhaps in small doses, if you take, say, two or three grams a day, uh, and I think for a vegetarian, maybe that would be a very smart thing to do because the only real source of quality creatine in our diet is red meat. So if you're not consuming meat, then you're getting almost no creatine in your diet. So for a vegetarian, maybe two or three grams a day thrown into your juice or your water or protein shake. Um, and that would be all I would recommend. Anything more than three or five grams at most a day will lead you down the path of creatine loading and have those negative effects on your performance. So again, just because the bodybuilders do it, just because it makes your muscles bigger and perhaps briefly stronger, doesn't mean it's a good thing for climbers. So there goes myth number five is that fad diets and fad nutritional supplements must be a good thing for climbers. In most cases, they're not. Wow, somehow I've talked for almost an hour. You know, it was my intention when I outlined this podcast to run about 30 minutes and well, I come in at close to an hour. I hope you don't mind it. If you think I'm too long-winded, well, then shoot me an email and tell me uh, something to the effect of Hearst cut to the chase. On the other hand, perhaps you like these more conversational podcasts where I uh, don't hesitate to go off on a tangent here or there. And, and maybe touch base on a few areas I hadn't intended to. And if you like that, well, then then I guess the one-hour-long podcast is uh, something you've enjoyed, hopefully, quite a bit. And if that's the case, well, then do leave a review on iTunes. You know, give us a, a big review. And uh, I appreciate your support and feedback uh, via my website. Of course, I have a number of books on the website you can check out. And if you want to support trainingforclimbing.com in this uh, podcast, Consider buying a book from us, one of the Gimme Craft books or 
my latest edition of Training for Climbing, and my Rock Climbers Exercise Guide, and uh, my mental training book, Maximum Climbing. I mean, there's a lot of good resources out there, uh, not just written by me, but by a handful of other authors. And I always am quick to promote that if you're into climbing and if you're passionate about training and uh, pursuing your genetic limits, well, then you should stock up on information and good information at that. Uh, Not be so quick to uh, believe everything you read on the internet and uh, really seek out trusted sources of information. Uh, And there are some good coaches and some good uh, communicators out there when it comes to uh, climbing performance and training for climbing and uh, all the different aspects and factors that influence climbing performance. And so uh, go out there and explore and, and, and seek out the knowledgeable coaches and uh, proven performers. And if you have a good coach, a reputable coach, who is kind of up on the research and up on the latest uh, training techniques and protocols, if you have someone like that in your town, engage them. There's nothing that beats working with a good coach one-on-one. And with that, I'll sign off for this month. I'm Eric Hurst from trainingforclimbing.com. Until next time, be safe, be strong, and climb on.